Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. By the way, this is the tree of life version for those of you wondering that. 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. This is what we're going to talk about today. The eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stick by one and look down on the other. You cannot serve Yahweh and money. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. Once upon a time, there was a little boy that went to church with his mama, and the preacher preached on false prophets that day. And he got home and he was drawing, told his mama, I'm going to draw a picture of a false prophet. He drew a head and he drew arms and a body and eyes and nose and mouth. But he didn't draw any legs on him. He took it to his mom and he said, I'm finished. And she said, you're not finished. You've got to draw all his legs. He said, Mama, you must not have been listening to the preacher. The preacher said, the false prophet doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> I'll get back to that in a second. Yeshua says here in verse 22, where we begin today with the exegesis. He says, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. And then he contrasts that with the bad eye and your whole body being full of darkness. I saw a sister this week say that when she was younger, this verse always troubled her because she had bad eyesight. She says she couldn't see good, and so she thought when it said, if your eye is bad, your whole body's full of darkness, she worried as a, a young lady that the verse was talking about her. And I assured her, and I can assure anybody else, that that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about your physical eyesight. It's not the meaning of the verses. But what is the understanding of the verse? Why does Yeshua talk about collecting treasures on the earth and then collecting treasures in heaven, verses 19 through 21? And then He says we're not supposed to be a slave to both Yahweh and mammon or money in verse 24. But in the middle, he talks about our eye or our eyes. Some translations say eyes being either good or bad. How do we make sense of this? Well, sometimes when we read the Bible, we misinterpret something because we're not familiar with the lingo or the speech of ancient times. In language and culture, there exists something called Idioms. And I looked up the definition of the word idiom this week in Merriam-Webster's dictionary and it sounded so confusing. So I decided I wasn't going to repeat it to the congregation. <laughs> Let me tell you Matthew Jansen's definition of an idiom. An idiom is a figure of speech that is not literal, but it's a way of saying one thing that stands for something else. For instance, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Now, when I told that at the beginning of the sermon, the false prophet, even though he was drawn by the little boy without legs, he has two legs. He stands on two legs, but that means he doesn't have any truth behind him. 
There's no substance to what he's saying. What about I call shotgun? When somebody says I call shotgun, do you look around to see who's holding the gun? What about when somebody says we're on the same page? Yeah, we're on the same page. Are you and somebody else holding a book? Or right now, it's up in the air. When somebody says that, is there something that's floating up above you? What about this one? I heard this one on Andy Griffith's show one time. I'm going to give him a knuckle sandwich. Is that two pieces of bread with knuckles in the middle? Or what about this one? It's raining cats and dogs. If I tell you it's raining cats and dogs, do you go outside and hold a kennel up? No. Or I've said this one at work before when I got my work truck in a tight spot. I said, boy, I've got myself in a pickle. And when I said that, my helper didn't ever think that I just climbed inside of a pickle. These are all idioms. They're figures of speech that we use in our modern American culture to where if I tell Brother Jerry, I've got myself in a pickle, he knows what I mean. I don't have to explain it to him. If you hear two little boys fussing on the playground and one says, I'm going to give you a knuckle sandwich, we know what he means. We know what he means. So we have ways of saying things sometimes to describe situations that we find ourselves in. And these idioms that we use are particular to the culture that we live in. For instance, if an Asian person, let's say, who speaks English but grew up in Japan heard me say, I call shotgun, they would probably wonder why I was talking about a gun before I climbed into the front passenger seat of a car. And likewise, they would have idioms in their culture that I wouldn't understand. Uh, the British people have um, a figure of speech when they're excited about their new apartment. And over in England, they call apartments flats. And they use the word mad to mean excited. And so if they're excited about their apartment, they'll say, I'm mad about my flat. Now, I don't do a good British accent. You could tell I speak Southern accent. I don't do a good British accent, so I can't say it like them. But they say, I'm mad about my flat. Now, we might think, I'll speak for myself, the first time I heard that, I thought they were talking about they had a flat tire on the side of the road and they were upset. Because if somebody from the South says, man, I'm mad about my flat, I think, well, they had a flat tire. But somebody from Britain is talking about they're excited about their apartment. These are idioms. Different people and cultures speak in idiom ways all the time. And those of us in the same culture or same town or same state or what have you grew up in the same area of the world. We know what each other means when we use these idioms. Now, I believe that in Matthew 6, verse 22, I believe most preachers get the understanding and the interpretation incorrect because they don't recognize that Yeshua is speaking a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew figure of speech. I don't believe it has anything to do with your physical eye being good or healthy or single, as some translations say. I don't think it means you have to have a single purpose in life. Most preachers, when they preach this text, they'll say, you've got to have a single purpose in life. Keep your eyes on one thing, single purpose. That might be good, but I don't think that's what this text is talking about. This is a figure of speech that the Hebrews used to describe somebody who was generous with their wealth. Or on the flip side, a bad eye or an evil eye describes somebody who is stingy or holds on to their money tightly. So a good eye is somebody that gives away things, is generous. A bad eye is somebody that's stingy. Now, it's easy for me to just say that 
let me show it to you from the Bible. We'll go to the Bible, the Older Testament. Remember that Yeshua didn't have a New Testament. Yeshua's Bible was what people called the Old Testament, more correctly the Hebrew Scriptures. Growing up as a Hebrew boy, he would have begun learning the Torah in formal school at age five and probably had much of the Torah, if not all of it, already memorized when he turned about 13 years old, roughly, um, as a teenager. Now, it helped. it helped that he was the son of Yahweh. That helped. <laughs> but most all Hebrew boys would learn the Torah in Torah school. The first text I'd like to look at is Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15 is about a wealthy brother loaning a poor brother money. And it's talking about loaning him money when the sabbatical year is coming up. Now that's significant because at the sabbatical year, Deuteronomy 15, it says all debts are released. Wouldn't that be great? Every seven years, all debts were canceled. The law warns the wealthy brother not to be stingy or tight-fisted or hold back his money because he sees this poor brother come to him and say, I really need to borrow $1,000. And the wealthy guy's thinking, but it's only six more months till we get to the sabbatical year. I don't know if the poor brother will be able to pay me back in six months. Yahweh says, don't withhold from your poor brother. Go ahead and give it to him. The sabbatical year comes about. He's not able to pay you back that quick. Just count it as a blessing to him. That's the law of Yahweh. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. Let's read it. If a poor man, one of your brothers, is with you within any of your gates in your land, which Yahweh, your mighty one, gives you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. But you shall surely open your hand to him and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need, which he lacks. Beware that there not be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, well, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. And look, and your eye be evil against your poor brother. It's not talking about your physical eyesight. Your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. Stingy, withholding, not generous. And he cry to Yahweh against you and it be sin to you. You shall surely give and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because that for this thing, Yahweh your mighty one will bless you in all your work and in all that you put your hand to. For the poor will never cease out of the land. That's a good one if somebody tries to tell you the prosperity gospel means everybody's supposed to be rich. This text talking about all the children of Israel, the poor will never cease out of your land. Therefore, I command you to surely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and to your poor in your land. So verse 9, where the World English Bible that I just read has, and your eye be evil, the HCSB translates it as, you're stingy towards your poor brother. It doesn't say, I be evil. Now the Hebrew literally reads word for word, your eye be evil. Stingy is not a bad translation. What the Holman Bible is doing is giving the meaning for meaning translation. The World English Bible is giving the literal word for word. We miss out on the idiom when we read the Holman, but if we don't limit ourselves to one Bible translation, which you should never do, you should always read multiple translations, and you read a more literal translation, you'll see the I be evil. It's talking about stinginess, miserliness. The next text is in Deuteronomy 28. This is where the curses for disobedience are being described. And what we're going to read here is awful. 
it speaks of a curse coming upon the nation of Israel so badly that a man is starving to the point that he wants to eat his own flesh and blood children. Now we think that the curse could never get that bad, but if you read the historical account in the book of Josephus, when the Roman armies came against Jerusalem, the siege against Jerusalem in 70 A.D., this actually happened where a Roman soldier went into the house of an Israelite woman and she was cooking her child in the oven because she hadn't eaten for so long. And she was trying to get some nourishment. It's awful. It's a curse that Yahweh puts upon the Israelites when we do not obey. Deuteronomy 28, 53-55 You will eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom Yahweh your Mighty One has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies will distress you. The man who is tender among you, and tender doesn't mean limperisted, it means dignified, it means uh, statesman, the man who is refined, the man who you would never think that this would happen to. It says, His eye will be evil toward his brother, toward the wife whom he loves, and toward the remnant of his children whom he has remaining, so that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left to him in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy will distress you in all your gates. The HCSB, instead of literally putting your eye will be evil, it says you will look grudgingly against your brother. The New Living Translation says you will have no compassion against your neighbor. The God's Word Translation says you will become stingy against your neighbor. All of these are correct. But the World English Bible retains the idiom word for word from the Hebrew. We see this again in Proverbs 28, verse 22. The World English Bible says, A stingy man hurries after riches and doesn't know that poverty waits for him. Now, look at it from the King James Version. It says, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye, and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. Notice how an evil eye is tied with hoarding the wealth. Proverbs 23, verses 6 through 7, first from the Good News Bible. Don't eat at the table of a stingy person or be greedy for the fine food he serves. Come on and have some more, he says. But he doesn't mean it. What he thinks is what he really is. That's the Good News Bible. Now from a more literal word-for-word -word translation, the Darby Bible says, Eat thou not the food of him that hath an evil eye. Neither desire thou his dainties, for as he thinketh in his soul, so is he. Eat and drink, he will say unto thee, but his heart is not with thee. So this man that has this evil eye, this stingy man, he doesn't really want you to eat his food. He might say, oh, come on in. Eat whatever you want to. And then the whole time you're eating, he's saying, oh, boy, he's eating me out of house and home. I wish he wouldn't have came over. The man has an evil eye. He's stingy. He's not generous. <laughs> Proverbs 22, verse 9. The good of eye. Here's the flip side. We talked about the evil eye. Now, Proverbs says, the good of eye. He is blessed. For he has given his bread to the poor. Notice the good of eye is linked with being generous. That's the literal standard version. The ESV says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. The Good News Bible says, it paraphrases this by saying, be generous and share your food with the poor. You will be blessed for it. 
So the meaning behind this idiom, this evil eye versus the good eye, is used time and time again in the Older Testament, and it's also used in Hebrew commentary and Hebrew history. Evil eye and good eye. And what it stems from, this is what it stems from, because all idioms have meanings behind them. It stems from how a person might look upon his neighbor before he gives or when he refrains from giving. So a stingy person, I'll use me as an example. I don't want to call any of y'all stingy. <laughs> Let's say, Brother Jerry, I know he's in need. And he says, Brother, I need to borrow some money. And I look on him with that evil eye. <laughs> I don't know, Brother Jerry. I don't know. <laughs> That's having an evil eye. That's stingy. But a good eye is, he says, Brother Matthew, I'm really in need. I say, oh, Brother, how can I help you? He's my brother. I want to help him. That's a good eye. My eyes light up. That's a good eye. So with this understanding, Matthew chapter 6, 22-23 makes perfect sense when we understand the Hebrew idiom. Yeshua speaks of storing up treasures in heaven. Verses 19-21. through 21. He says you can't serve Yahweh in money. In verse 24. And right in between He says if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. He's speaking of a generous and giving person, one who gives to others of his wealth. That's the good eye. Versus a stingy, holding back person, one who hoards his wealth and does not give to the poor. So if you're a generous giver, it shows that you're not mastered or controlled by your wealth. A generous person realizes that all that he or she owns is temporary and fleeting. A generous person realizes I brought no material wealth into this world and I will take none out with me when I die. So, you help other people with your wealth because you know that the true treasure comes later in the kingdom of heaven. The treasures that the believer is going to get in the kingdom of heaven are so much greater than any treasure we could have on this earth. So let's have a good eye, not an evil eye. Look at a parallel that Yeshua gave in Luke 14, 12-14, Tree of Life version. Then Yeshua was also saying to the one who invited him, When you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Now, a lot of people read stuff like that and think it's saying you can't invite your friends. <laughs> what Yeshua is saying is don't only invite them. That's the meaning. Don't, don't let that be your primary people that you invite. Otherwise, they might invite you in return as your payback. It's kind of like when Yeshua says, if you love those that love you, what reward will you have? A heathen can do that. It's easy for me to love my son, Elijah. He's my son. I love him. But some people in this world don't, you don't love them as easy, right? You know, uh, that's just how it is. Because they rub you the wrong way. They're your enemy, but you show them love anyhow. You be kind to them. You help them out if they need help. Uh, because that takes a child of Yahweh to do. What's well, the same thing right here. Anybody can call their rich neighbor over for a lunch. The whole time they're coming over to your house for lunch, you're thinking, oh yeah, they'll pay me back. I ain't got to worry about nothing about this. <laughs> you know, you buy a rich person's lunch or dinner, you think in your mind, I'll get it back next time. Anybody can do that. Yeshua says, verse 13, when you host a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed. 
since they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's talking about the kingdom. That's when the kingdom of heaven comes down to the earth. The person who gives to the poor hosts this banquet and is generous to people that can't pay him back. And he knows they can't pay him back, but yet he, he does the banquet up just so wonderful. Yeshua says, don't worry, you'll get repaid. It may not be in this life. You'll get repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So this leads perfectly into Matthew 6.24, our last verse for today. It says, you cannot be a slave of two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both Yahweh and money. Yeshua's point is not that you can't have any money or wealth. Yeshua's point is not that you cannot be rich. I mean, obviously, this teaching today is about being generous, right? Being generous and giving. That's not possible to do unless you have something to be generous with and giving with, right? So Yeshua's point is not that Job was wrong because he was rich or Father Abraham was wrong because he was rich. That's not Yeshua's point. Yeshua's point is that when you're wealthy as a believer, you show that you're not controlled or mastered by your money when you're able to give a portion of it away. Obviously, you have to keep something for yourself to take care of you, your wife, your children. But you give a portion of it away because you know Yahweh is the one that gives me power to get wealth. Not me, Yahweh. So I'm going to give back to the cripple, to the poor, to the lame. Consider our father Abraham. Genesis 13 verse 2 says that Abraham, or at that time he was called Abram, it says, doesn't just say he was rich. It says he was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Now Abraham is the father of faith. He's a righteous man. He'll be in the kingdom. We'll dine at the table with Abraham. But he was rich, yet he was called a friend of Elohim. Isaiah 41, James 2. Do you think Abraham was generous with his wealth? Well, yes, he was. One of the strongest characteristics of Abraham was that he was a generous man. He was always giving, looking out for other people, and helping other people. There's one time in Genesis 13 where the herdmen of Abraham and the herdmen of Lot were arguing about who would get what parcel of land. And Abraham saw that the argument was getting heated and Abraham told Lot, he said, I tell you what, y'all pick first and I'll take what's left over. That's Father Abraham. He was generous. He said, I'm going to do this so we can stop the argument. In Genesis 14, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek the priest. That tithe that Abraham gave wasn't commanded. Even if you read the codified law of Moses, it wasn't commanded because it was on spoils of war. And there's different regulations for what you give to Yahweh from spoils of war. It was when Abraham went to these heathen kings that had kidnapped Lot. And he rescued Lot and he took spoils of war. And then when Melchizedek the priest came out, he gave him a tenth of everything from the spoils of war. He was a giving man. In Genesis 21, possibly the greatest gift Abraham ever was willing to give. Yahweh didn't let him go through with it. But in Genesis 21, Abraham was willing to give his beloved son Isaac. Yahweh said, I want you to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice to me. Abraham didn't argue. Blows my mind. He took Isaac up. 
And Isaac wasn't a little boy. Isaac was a grown man. And he said, in one text says, Isaac said, bind me tight, Dad. We want to obey what Yahweh has told you to do. And praise Yahweh as the knife was up. The angel came down and said, stop. I know you love me. I know you won't withhold your only son for me. And then Yahweh produced this ram in the thicket. And Abraham named that place Yahweh will provide because he provided that ram. Abraham was willing to give his beloved son Isaac. In Genesis 25, Abraham gave gifts to some of his sons when they were older. He sent them away and he sent them away with gifts. He was generous. In Genesis 18, there were three men who showed up at Abraham's house. Some say they were all three angelic beings. Some say two of them were angels and one of them was Yahweh. It's debatable. I could see either way. But Abraham didn't know this at first. And he saw three men coming to his house from a distance. And you know what he did? First thing he did, he went and got some water. And he washed their feet. And he told Sarah, he said, quick, make some bread. He told his servant, he said, quick, kill the calf. Let's prepare a meal for these travelers, for these strangers that have come. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of a New Testament text in Hebrews 13, verse 2, where it says, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For in doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. We've got to be discerning, brothers and sisters. Yahweh may be sending us an angel, seeing if we're going to help out or we're going to be stingy. We're going to have an evil eye or we're going to have a good eye. In the book of Jasher, Yashir means the book of the upright. It speaks of the generosity of Abraham. I know that some people have a problem with the book of Jasher. And I'm not saying that it's Holy Scripture, but there is a book of Jasher mentioned two times in the Older Testament. It says, is it not written in the book of Jasher? It's mentioned twice in the Older Testament. Some people argue that the one we have today is not the same one that was mentioned then. It's debatable whether or not Jasher we have is the same book Regardless, the history in the book of Jasher is derived from the Scriptures, and a lot of times it fills in the gaps. It doesn't contradict the Bible, but it fills in the gaps and helps us to understand some things in more detail and more depth that we just get the overview of in the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. I love this one in Jasher 22, verses 11 through 13. It talks about Father Abraham, who we want to be like. It says, And Abraham planted a large grove in Beersheba, and he made to it four gates facing the four sides of the earth. And he planted a vineyard in it so that if a traveler came to Abraham, he entered any gate which was in his road and remained there and ate and drank and satisfied himself and then departed. For the house of Abraham was always open to the sons of men that passed and repassed who came daily to eat and drink in the house of Abraham. And any man who had hunger and came to Abraham's house, Abraham would give him bread that he might eat and drink and be satisfied. And anyone that came naked to his house, he would clothe with garments as he might choose and give him silver and gold and make known to him the master who had created him in the earth. This did Abraham all his life. I know some men that have given like this. And one time I asked each of them why. Both of them had similar answers and they said, 
the Lord's been given to me all my life, whether I deserved it or not. Why can't I give to people whether they deserve it or not? Abraham had a good eye. His eye was good. He was wealthy. He was rich. But he was generous. He had silver, gold, articles of clothing, plenty of food, but he did not serve money because he was willing to give it away. Riches were not his master. He served Yahweh over money. That was shown in the giving away of wealth. Brothers and sisters, this is the harmony between all the Scriptures that speak of wealth positively and all the Scriptures that speak of wealth negatively. This is the harmony what I'm talking about today. There are groups in the broad umbrella of Christianity that only read one side of the Scriptures or the other side of the Scriptures. For instance, you see a lot of them on TV, Prosperity Gospel. I could teach the Prosperity Gospel if I only focused on one set of Scriptures. And my next sermon would be, God wants you to be wealthy. But that would be a lopsided doctrine. We just read in Deuteronomy 15, the poor you will always have with you in the land. So don't be tight-fisted toward your poor brother. You've also got groups on the other side of the fence, maybe like the Amish or something similar to that, who think that you can't have money or nice things. You can't even have a silver chrome bumper on your car. They paint them bumpers black because they don't want nothing shiny on their car. And you know what they do? They focus on only the verses that talk about the poor. We're whole Bible believers. We've got to focus on all the verses and then we've got to let them dovetail together and see what they teach. There's some truth in both teachings in each extreme. But we don't want some truth. We want total truth. When you read them all, believe them all, and then bring them together and harmonize, that's when you arrive at good doctrine. So when we take everything into account, the Bible teaches there are rich, righteous people, poor, righteous people. In Deuteronomy 15, again, there's someone wealthy lending to someone who is poor before the sabbatical year. In Luke 14, the guy that hosts the banquet's got to have more money than the crippled man that he calls to the banquet. Someone wealthy, someone poor. Both of them can serve Yahweh. Both of them can be Yahweh's children. Yeshua is not teaching against having wealth. He's teaching to make sure our wealth is kept in proper perspective. Wealth is not to be a master above Yahweh. And it's not to be used just for ourselves. But we're to use the resources that Yahweh blesses us with to help other people. If we're truly mastered by Yahweh, we will be generous and giving of our finances. We will help people. We won't have that evil eye. Now, I just found this today. I was going back over my notes today, and I found this text in the ERV. You know what the ERV stands for? And I'm not even joking. The easy-to-read version. <laughs> I looked it up. But I love this translation. It's beautiful, and it's the only one that brought across the idiom properly. Look at verse... 22, the only source of light for the body is the eye. If you look at people and want to help them, you will be full of light. But if you look at people in a selfish way, you will be full of darkness. And if the only light you have is really darkness, you have the worst kind of darkness. That's a correct bringing over the meaning from the Hebrew evil eye into English. Generosity versus selfishness. Now, as I close, let's balance this out. It's hard being a preacher because 
a lot of times people only hear part of what you say and they run with it. And I've had people get back to me on several doctrines and say, Brother Matthew, I heard you believe this. And I said, yeah, let me tell you the rest of the story like Paul Harvey used to say. You need to listen carefully. Let me balance this out. This does not mean what I'm teaching today is all true. All of it's true. But it doesn't mean that you have to help everybody that comes along in your life. doesn't mean that. If I gave to everybody that asked me or everybody that I saw in need, I wouldn't have anything for my family. And Yahweh commands me to take care of my wife and my children, right? Same thing with the rest of you brothers. Take care of your family. And unfortunately, there are some people who are looking for handouts to keep up bad habits. Now, these people need to be helped too. And I have watched elders, my father-in-law is one of them, help people out that he knew were going to do something wrong with what he was, what he was giving them. But he, had, he has that kind of a heart. He has that kind of a heart. However, there comes a point where maybe we might need to practice hard love and not keep up somebody's bad habit, right? So we need to be discerning in our giving. When you're discerning in your giving, when you ask and pray, Yahweh, lead me, lead me to people who I need to give to. Be discerning, but don't use discernment as an excuse to never give. We might walk around and the whole every time we have an opportunity to give, we say, no, I don't discern that. I don't discern that. And it might be because we want to keep that $100 bill in, the, in our pocket <laughs> instead of give it away. Uh, if you have a problem and can't give something away, may need to read Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve two masters. It might be a sign of stinginess instead of giving. There are widows in the world today. Seek them out. There are genuine poor people. Seek them out. There are orphans. Seek them out. Seek them out. There are people who hit on hard times. Seek them out. Look for somebody to give. I believe and I teach that a portion of everything that you make and earn should go to helping somebody that has less than you. A portion of it. And I have scripture to back me up because part of the tithe that was given to the nation of Israel, part of the tithe went to the widows, the orphans, and the poor. Now, you won't hear a lot of preachers preach that because they want all the tithe, right? They're not authorized to take the tithe anyhow. They're not a Levite. Yeshua didn't take tithes. He was from the tribe of Judah. He received offerings, uh, help, but he didn't take tithes because he wasn't a Levite. The tithes weren't to be given to Yeshua. But the tithe in Old Testament Israel, some of it went to the Levite. Some of it went to the widows, the orphans, and the poor, the stranger that joined to Israel. And then some of it went to you, the tither, to have at the feast. That's why I teach people. You give to ministries, you give to the poor, and you, you save for the feast. And then you rejoice and you share it with everybody. You bring the best of whatever you can afford. And you share it with everybody and you rejoice at Yahweh's feast. A portion of everything we make should be given to the poor or somebody with less. And when we do this, along with what we've talked about, prayer and fasting and giving of alms, giving to the poor, when you do all of that, all three of those, you're storing up treasures in heaven. It's like you have, you're storing up treasures in heaven. You can in another one, storing up treasures in heaven you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And the way you'll know if money is your master 
is if you will not give any of it away. That's how you know if it's your master. Now, next week I'm going to continue to talk about almsgiving, giving of alms a little bit more. And I'm going to deal with something that's kind of controversial. But all I ask is that you just be a good Berean and receive the Word and then study it and examine it by the Scriptures. I don't think that the Scriptures are unclear about it, but I'm just going to show more importance of the giving of alms, meaning giving to the poor.